Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Hallie Epstein, and I am a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy and a third-year law student at Yale. We're here today uh, with Professor Maxine Burkett from the William S. Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii. At Hawaii, Professor Burkett teaches tort law, climate change law and policy, clean energy law, and environmental and climate justice. Previously, she held teaching positions at the University of Oregon School of Law and the University of Colorado Law School. She also served as director of the Center for Island Climate Adaptation and Policy. Her scholarship concentrates on climate change adaptation, litigation, migration, and justice in the context of tort and international environmental law. Today, Professor Burkett is giving a talk at Yale Law School on climate refugees and the challenge of statehood, defining the problem, identifying solutions. Professor Burkett, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written extensively in the climate change arena. How did you become interested in climate change and environmental law more broadly? Well, I think there are a few reasons. One, um, I am originally from Kingston, Jamaica, and I have a particular affinity for islands. <laughs> I've sort of ended up in another island on the other side, in the other ocean. Um, and I'm raising my kids in, in islands, and these are finite spaces with finite resources and tight communities. And so the sense of an environment as a more expansive uh, concept of where you live, work, and play really appealed to me. I did grow up in New York City, though, and so I have um, always been inspired by the environmental justice movement and linking public health and public welfare and, and individuals thriving with the quality of their lived environment, where the air they breathe, the water they drink. And so climate change was sort of uh, an, a sort of natural interest for me and a natural inspiration considering the justice work that I was really engaged with in, in the environmental justice movement. Um, and in my mind, climate change is sort of the final act in our exploitation of human and natural resources for energy, whether it's sugar or um, my ancestors, frankly, or fossil fuels. This is a real right. um, sort of, um, uns perhaps unsurprising though, you know, the scale is quite amazing for the impact to, to our communities based on our relationship to our, our resources and the world around us. Well, we'll return to your scholarship and research interest later in the podcast. But for now, I'd like to discuss your work in climate change policy in Hawaii, where you're raising your kids and where you're confronting these issues of finite spaces, as you mentioned. You're involved with several task forces dealing with climate change policy in the state. Could you tell us about your work and particularly in the climate adaptation context? Sure. Yeah, I was the um, director of the Center for Island Climate Adaptation and Policy, which is a mouthful, but it was ICAP for short. And what we were doing was providing a conduit between re university research and uh, decision makers, local decision makers and, and other regional decision makers that were really trying to tackle questions of how to adapt to climate change and be prepared for climate variability in the island context. And I thought, uh, and I continue to think, that that's a really important bridge uh, that's not necessarily established in, in many places that it's needed. And so in my capacity as director, I was invited to join uh, a couple of the task forces that were formed to first deal with greenhouse gas emissions 
of reduction. We have in Hawaii uh, the second, we were the second state to pass the Global Warming Solutions Act, which was looking at um, reducing our emissions. And we had to have some kind of infrastructure for how we, do, how we are, are to do that. And so we did a lot of research on how we might go about it. There was also the formation of the Climate Change Task Force, which actually ultimately didn't um, convene. <laughs> there wasn't funding, and there was a little bit of political dissent around how to pull it together. But it wasn't funded, and uh, instead I had worked directly, again, in my capacity as director of ICAP, with our state office of planning on a framework for climate change adaptation. And that was uh, really just a blueprint based on really great literature coming out of very important nonprofits that were trying to help cities get through the basic process of building public support, identifying the most vulnerable and risk, uh, the riskiest areas, and then implementing adaptation plans and having a process of monitoring and, and revisiting the successes and failures to do it better the next time. So I did a lot of that, and um, I think uh, it's had a really um, – it, it, it opened up a very important discussion in our state and, and hopefully will continue to, to sort of inspire – continued action on those issues. What sort of stages are some of these blueprints at? Are you seeing implementation? Are you seeing more policy discussions at the local level? Yeah, there's um, there is there's action happening per sector. And like a lot of uh, the projects that we're seeing on climate adaptation, it really requires partnerships between a number of different parties, right? So local government, state government, the federal government for funding primarily, and some blueprints uh, as well. And then, you know, engaging the private sector, that the public-private partnerships are are somewhat underdeveloped, but I think that's really the next frontier for really accelerating climate adaptation and and being able to um, learn from really important examples of how some entities have done it really well and how we might replicate that across sectors. So the transportation sector in particular in Hawaii has done some really good vulnerability assessments. And were you able in um, contributing to the passage of the Global Warming Solutions Act to learn from California's example? Were there interstate... Interstate discussions. Absolutely. I mean, it was informal on some level, but what what I uh, think is incredibly important, considering the the time limits that we have on the, some of these important climate questions, is that we don't recreate the wheel. And right. we are often in Hawaii. Um, we're a small state, and we have uh, um, limited human resources and time and capital. And so, when we have a good um, a good template. We like to take that and adapt it to our circumstances. And so California has provided a lot of templates that I think are very helpful, and they tend to be at the cutting edge of these issues, right? So uh, California and a handful of states on the East Coast tend to really push the discussion, and they've done the same in adaptation. So we, I think, um, appropriately um, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely makes sense not With to reinvent the wheel. Right, yes. right exactly. Yes. <laughs> And uh, moving back towards your legal scholarship, um, how, how has this policy work informed your legal scholarship? I know you've written about local government right. and adaptation, litigation, and policy mechanisms. Right. Yeah, no. Um, I, uh, I was just having a conversation with someone about my scholarship, and I think um, I sort of think of it as action-oriented scholarship in that it is hoping to uh, have relevance to everyone right to anyone that 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 could um use the what I work on to um, advance their very practical 
um, issue, right, and, and practical approaches. And so one of the things that I've been really working on is the, in the domestic climate policy world is, is the notion of adaptation towards or looking at how uh, we could really push the conversation about preparedness if we think about the liability of governments and, uh, and developers and those that are involved in build and built infrastructure, their liability uh, if they don't prepare as appropriately for forecasted climate change, right? What is reasonably foreseeable and can um, we understand that the, the different kinds of, whether it's building codes or plans that are made, um, have to, these things need to change in light of what we know about the changing climate and the severity of it and the, the speed, the rapid rate at which it's changing. And so with adaptation towards, for example, I've been able to um, develop that because when I was working at ICAP, there was oftentimes a question of, you know, is it possible to hold these, what, what is, or were described as irresponsible or willfully ignorant local governments and developers <laughs> for the poor decisions that they're making on the coastline in particular, right? Because obviously Hawaii is a 100% coastal state. This is, you know, we're constantly concerned about the coastline. Right. And there's a lot of activity there. And so I would get that question a lot from some parties, like, what are our options here? And... Um, there are definitely some legal hurdles, but it seemed to me that there was a pretty robust uh, sort of um, history of case law around this, the very basic question of have you built something appropriately given the circumstances? And if you haven't and it's caused right. injury, what do you do? So it seemed to me that there was something there. But even more than sort of encouraging litigation, it seemed to me that there was not a sense, there isn't a real sort of palpable sense of what the cost of ina- inaction would be. Okay. And unless you have an economist like Nor- Lord Nicholas Stern in your back pocket <laughs> in the city of County of Honolulu, you don't really have a sense of what it means not to act. And it came up a lot because we would say, we'd go into meetings at the Department of Planning and say, look, here are the things that would be- make sense to do that you can do today. And um, some were receptive, and then some would just sort of look at me blankly and say, how do you think we're going to afford this? This is way too much. You're asking us to move these things or to elevate that or to, you know, X, Y, and Z. This is impossible. And, um, and I, think, I think it was, uh, it was purely out of um, a lack of appreciation of how much it would cost not to do it, right? right. And in some ways, um, torts and, and litigation that um, – is looking to hold people accountable is good at giving them a, a sense of the alternative. Like, what if I don't do this right. right? What if I don't allow our communities to prepare appropriately? What does that cost look like? So the assessment of potential liability for a failure to act is actually an active way to um, to animate that discussion. And then the other piece is that, I mean, the whole sort of some one of the guiding principles of tort law is to encourage or channel better behavior. And so in some ways, I see it as a, a more of a, of a positive uh, behavior, good behavior encouraging activity than a punitive, you know, stick to say, look, this is what it would mean if you don't do it. These are mm-hmm. the people and property and lives that you're putting in harm's way if we don't make better decisions at the coastline. So that was almost a direct, that research was almost a direct result of conversations on both sides of the issue. It also seems that the specter of liability uh, among individual local governments could encourage states or sets of local governments to work together because coordinated action seems more likely to have the effects that we want on mitigating or allowing for adaptation to climate change. That's that's absolutely right. And, and it's, it's actually even beyond the government level, too, in, the, in that um, anyone that's, again, dealing with the built infrastructure, whether it's developers, um, brokers, 
architects, engineers, I mean, they are held to a standard of um, reasonable action, right, under the circumstances and what's what's foreseeable. Um, and again, I think we're going to have a much better appreciation of what is foreseeable um, based on what the climate science is looking like now and as it drills down better into smaller um, geographical spaces. It's not uh, a slam dunk necessarily, right? There are, there are a number of hurdles that we would have to right. jump through to have a successful claim on the merits, but just the activity and the engagement on, of the, and the discussion about what that would mean, I think, will we'll get us somewhere. Moving now to one of the other major themes of your work, um, climate justice. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the single greatest barrier on the federal level to achieving greater climate justice? Well, I think um, the very inability of us uh, at the Fed to sort of to have a national, a sensible conversation at the national level about climate change. Period is actually a massive hurdle. So I think a lot of people appreciate that that's a big, big barrier. Um, but it's funny, I um, the sense of urgency and impending doom that you hear in the language of climate deniers, but in the context of spending and debt ceilings and the burden, the financial burden on future generation, it really echoes a lot of the same language that we know um, when you look at the climate science about what's forecast for future generations. And it seems to me then that all sides are at least agree that we are concerned about future burdens and the future burdens we've placed on our children and and our grandchildren and, and so on and so on. But some of us, I think, have a better grasp of the more catastrophic threat. But at least we can all sort of agree that we want to, that future generations matter and they matter to us greatly and that we should, uh, we should act according to our commitments to, our, uh, to future generations. So uh, the barrier is that we, we have to get to the point where we can have a sensible conversation about climate change. And then once we get there, I think we can, you know, agree that we want to do it better for the sake of our children and then quibble about what's more cost-effective at that end, right? But. And when when we talk about future generations, yeah. I think we can't have the discussion without talking about race, poverty, um, and just economic disparities that will affect people around the world and domestically in terms of how they can adapt to or um, address climate change. So your work has also touched upon those aspects. Absolutely. And and these are – they're actually uh, – present tense examples of, of extreme climate burdens that people are experiencing that's happening um, throughout the globe and the global south in particular that really warrant rapid action now. And I think uh, un- stripped of the political tensions and you know our history of the way we've discussed climate change, I think that there are really compelling uh, instances of, of real need and real inequity that require our attention. What are some and, of those examples? Yeah, I Tell us. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, I mean, you know, I there are a number of examples. If you look at the um, everything from the impacts of, of major flooding events in South Asia and Southeast Asia, if you look at heightened desertification and water security issues and water scarcity in Africa, specifically in the, um, the Sahel, the desertification that's advancing. Um, if you look in some of the, the conflicts that may have some climate impacts in the in the Middle East, that or maybe the result of climate um, impacts and resource scarcity in the Middle East, um, water in particular. I mean, there are just innumerable instances, and I happen to focus on island states and island nations, and we're looking at a situation where incredibly vulnerable societies that were already in, in 
in situations that were you know stressful <laughs> um, <laughs> having this added amplification of the, that vulnerability and that stress because of the impacts of climate change and it's it's sea level rise is, is one that we kind of understand and we associate more closely with islands but there's also you know issues there as well of um, heat, extreme heat, um, particularly as research is showing, is forecasted as soon as 10 to 30 years of just incredible heat, ish, uh, extreme heat events, um, drought, uh, and heavy rainfall, precipitation events, the ocean acidification that's a sort of a, the, the sibling to climate change and mm-hmm. what the impacts are going to be on their uh, marine resources and uh, protein sources. I mean, the, it's really, when you look at, when you pull, pull together all of the possible impacts, you have a uh, really a formidable set of circumstances for small islanders to to face. And it, the injustice of it is even more, um, it's even more striking because obviously they've had such an, an infinitesimal um, contribution to the problem in the first place, right? Their emissions are just uh, vanishingly small. So it's uh, it's really quite a, um, a sort of moving and pointing example of how communities are being burdened, um, poor communities, native, indigenous communities, communities of color throughout the world. And island nations are also in a particularly vulnerable position due to the possibility of territorial loss. So that right. brings us to our next topic, one that you've written about in depth, climate-induced migration. Could you... Tell our listeners a little bit about your work and uh, your views on the problem. Yeah. Um, so climate-induced migration is basically what we, in the, I think, the legal field call uh, climate refugees, right? In popular okay. discourse, we understand, we sort of have a sense of what it means to be on the move and outside of your country and or outside of your the place where you live. And uh, climate refugees has become a real popular term to describe that scenario. Of course, um, as as lawyers, we have to be more cautious with our words, right? And um, descriptive labels don't necessarily have legal weight. And we are not... we, we cannot interpret what's happening as a result of climate change to be one that fits neatly within the Refugee Convention. Um, and so we don't speak about climate refugees per se, but we have a sense of who they are when we use the term. And um, really we're talking about people that have had to move from their homes, either permanently or temporarily, because of some kind of climate-induced event. And that could be flooding, that could be a storm, that could be um, drought that makes your crop yield, you know, nosedive to the point where you can't uh, can't subsist as well, or, or you know, allow for proper income, and you have to move uh, from where you you live. And most of that movement is actually happening within states. So not as much of it is cross-border. Some of it is cross-border. Um, and even we may not even identify it as a climate-induced move, but it is and in some cases if you scratch the surface a little bit. Okay. And then there's the really unique situation of small island atoll nations that are so uh, that, that are so low-lying that they actually might risk future uninhabitability of their territory either through being totally submerged or more likely having their water resources and their um, 
their crop crops being totally inundated with with salt water and not be viable, right? So you can't you just can't live there, even though there may be a there may be a patch of land um, smaller than it used to be, but it's still there. So um, I focus on I'm, I look at the the issue generally, but then I, I certainly also focus on some of the more difficult questions from an international law perspective um, of you know what happens to people when they move. Um, and again, if most of that movement is an internal internal migration, there may be other um, principles or governance frameworks that mm-hmm. will apply to those people that are moving. But then when you talk about cross border movement, then a whole slew of other areas of law come into into play. Obviously, international law and uh, human rights and human, humanitarian law, the perhaps refugee law, if we were to think about amending it. But there's also domestic laws, right, and immigration policy, national security, um, environmental laws that might touch on these issues. I mean, there's there it's really an interesting space of incredible overlap in terms of various legal areas that might might have something to say about the issue. And it it sounds to me like as important as it is to recognize this new and emerging issue, it's also um, significant that you attempt to describe climate-induced migration in terms that are familiar to the international legal community and to our existing norms and principles. Um, Love to hear about how you navigate describing these new problems in old and familiar terms. Right. Well, it's funny because I... um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, you can try to think about these issues in the existing framework, but on some level, it's impossible because the existing framework assumes sort of a narrow band of stationary existence, right? Right. right. Um, <laughs> or the, the that you can't presume any any longer again, according to the climate forecast. So what I what I do in in looking at the question of statelessness, right? And statelessness is um, usually it talks about people who are um, don't have a, a nationality or a country to which they can appeal for, you know, protection. Mm-hmm. And, um, and statelessness also, also most often deals with uh, a situation where you, there, a, a successor state exists, um, even if a predecessor state is dissolved. But in this case, there is no identified successor state where if we find that islanders have to move from their atoll nations, the, you know, the successor state, there is no infrastructure that we've identified that would identify who those states would be. Um, and then the predecessor state has disappeared. So I, for example, if I'm from Kiribati, Kiribati is no longer inhabitable, so we don't, we don't have that. And so we have to look at different ways of allowing for their for these communities to still be able to um, exist with and progress with with the least amount of suffering and setback. And so one of the proposals that has has emerged is the notion of having a statehood and international personality that is deterritorialized. So deterritorialized statehood is um, a proposal that a couple of other legal scholars have introduced but hadn't elaborated um, the, on the, their initial statements and haven't really justified in terms of if there's prior precedent or other kind of principles or theories that could support um, and this kind of departure. That's your concept of the nation XC2 or XC2 nationhood? Exactly. So I was thinking, I mean, XC2 is just sort of out of place, right? And so right. this is the nation XC2 or it's the state. Um, it's thinking about uh, the possibility of having 
deterritorialized states that still have uh, relevance in the international community and presence in the international community, even if they've lost their territory, which is generally seen as one of the four perhaps indispensable elements of of statehood, and I say perhaps indispensable because <laughs> it's one of the t- theories that we're pressing against. And, right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the initial question about whether or not we could do have proposals that are consistent with the existing norms and principles of international law, um, it's not clear that even this proposal is compatible, right? I mean, so there's a couple of people have different minds about it. Some believe that territory is an indispensable element of statehood, and I've gotten some pushback. Um, on my proposal because I am suggesting that that territory is dispensable, not being cavalier about it, but that we have to, considering the circumstances and for a handful of other reasons, we could be um, we could be a little bit more creative about how we think about the next the, our future, right? And the way we understand statehood in light of the climate change forecast that we have. So um, I think there are arguments that territory is indispensable is. They're convincing arguments, but I think they may be anachronistic if we, you know, think about what the conversation will look like in in a couple of gen- a generation or two from now. That's a great point. I think changing conceptions of international principles and rules of law, especially when we consider, as you mentioned before, the infinitesimal right. contributions that these island nations have had to their now existential threat. Right. Exactly. Exactly definitely presents a convincing argument for reconceptualizing some of these principles of statehood. (laughs) I mean, we want to be careful because I always, um, you know, there's, we are always concerned in the law with the slippery slope, right? And we want to be able to have a coherent proposal that then doesn't open up Pandora's box of other possibilities. And, uh, you know, I often say, you know, I've got, I've gotten questions like what happens if left-handed surfers say we demand, you know, we demand our own deterritorialized (laughs) statehood that should be recognized as an internet, you know, a legal entity that has yeah. Well, so, and, you know, you want to, I think this is such a, a, a bounded and unique example that it's it should at least be a departure point for conversation. And we can't insist on the same norms um, established over the past several decades when we're faced with unprecedented, devastating, bizarre, you know, some downright bizarre impacts of climate change. And, uh, and we should be willing to have the conversation about what this new world might look like in a principled fashion. We've been talking about how the international community might accept stateless Mm. people, and I'd like to turn to how stateless people might view themselves. So Mm. uh, even if the international community embraces the concept of ex situ nationhood or has to face this reality in coming years with sea level rise, how, if at all, do you think we and island communities can address the harm to their culture and place-based identities that will inevitably accompany climate migration? Yeah, I think this is the the most difficult part of the question, actually, more so than even <laughs> the difficulty of re- rethinking some elements of international law that we thought <laughs> static, right? I mean, these are people's lives. And, um, you know, to capture some of the difficulty, I've often... I think in America we we see ourselves as fairly transient, and, and we would we would move if necessary, and um, and leaving your home doesn't necessarily initially seem to be as traumatic as uh, 
as as it sounds on his face and 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 then I say well you know if you're a Texan what if I told you you have to go to Brooklyn tomorrow right um, <laughs> or vice versa I mean, there, you have some, we have examples actually certainly we have real time examples of climate induced migration in the U.S. and in Alaska is one of the um, more clear examples of it. But when people lost their homes in Joplin, Missouri, it was a really powerful, haunting, and horrible experience. And so we know that these events, when they happen, are, are, are things that no one welcomes. And especially communities and cultures and peoples that are so connected to land, um, as the Pacific peoples generally tend to be, then you have a kind of loss that's really incalculable. And what we do about that is really difficult. Um, and assuming we get to the point where we're, A, having a sensible conversation about climate change anyway, period, and then B, we're thinking about solutions, and then C, we're thinking about solutions that are fair and equitable, the next level is what do you do about the things that um, are are not compensable in traditional ways? What do you do about culture? What do you do about indigenous communities that are sort of ripped from their, their ripped from their ancestors, right, um, um, when we when we suggest that they need to leave or when we know that they might have to leave. And so it's, um, I, that is a, that's tough. And I think a lot of the reason why you're not even seeing as much conversation about climate-induced migration and loss of culture from Pacific Islanders. So the Majora De- Declaration just came out last month, uh, Pacific Islands Forum, and it was an opportunity to talk about climate change and committing to more aggressive emissions reductions. And it was seen as a success, but nobody talked about migration, <laughs> right? And I think it's a really difficult conversation to have. I think um, it's painful. It is uh, one you don't want to acknowledge and one where you sensibly would say, this is not on the table. But at the point where we get to um, a discussion about what happens, because um, I think we might have to based on the science, then the culture piece we'll have to address, I think, through proposals like reparations and compensation. And I've, I've written on climate reparations, and I think that there's a place for it, not as a punitive me- measure, but as a means for solidarity between the developing world and the developed world, you know, the, these divisions that have kept the conversation um, really um, sterile and stilted because we are concerned about liability, right? When If we can shift the conversation to talk about uh, the fact that Harms have happened, and we want to make all whole so that we all have the best possibility for thriving in the end. And that's the way you get to the conversation about loss of culture, because I don't think you can ever repay that. That makes sense. Do you think that communities or forums, such as the Pacific Forum, should be including these discussions right now, or do you think it would be counterproductive and not worth the time at the moment when we should be focusing on any adaptive or, I guess, mitigating uh, factors that we can address right now that even with the science, it might still be possible to have an impact. Right. I think um, I I totally understand why the conversation isn't being had, at least in broad daylight, right? Um, (laughs) So I think what happens is that uh, I think a lot of these countries are having the conversation, um, but have a hybrid approach, right? So, uh, and some have been more explicit about it. Like Kiribati said, well, we know this is 
it's probably too late for us so we want to stay definitely obviously but we are going to have other options either through labor migration agreements or other novel approaches and so there's um, a twin approach and uh, and so it's not that I shouldn't suggest that the conversation's not happening happening at all and I think it is and, and it's happening in some very uh, meaningful ways but it's um it is understandably not a posture they want to take in the international negotiations and national discussion, um, in addition to it being a, a difficult reality to embrace. Moving now to questions of liability, which, mm. as we've discussed, are everyone in the international community tiptoes around in some way, or there's mm. been a lot of um, pushback on. Um, you've written as well about climate litigation, and you've researched the role of justice in a particularly um, particularly moving case, Kivalina versus ExxonMobil. Could you discuss a bit your views on the case and any conclusions you've drawn from there that either bear on your work or your views about local government liability, other, other aspects you take into the future? Sure. Um, so, I've, I I uh, I think this problem of climate change. I sort of I call it a thousand cuts problem. We have to basically attack it with every possible tool that we have in our toolbox, whether we're lawyers or uh, public health officials or you know any whoever you are. Um, this is your issue, and you can come to it with whatever tools um, will help. And and I find that in, um, there is a real hesitation in the courtroom about addressing the issue. And Kivalina is trying to, is a case brought by Native Alaskans who are seeking assistance for relocation, right? Where they have to relocate. This is domestic example, a domestic example of climate-induced migration. Uh, they have to relocate because where they live is, um, is, is becoming increasingly dangerous and the things that they do and access in terms of food, water, and shelter are, becoming, are compromised. And so these kinds of lawsuits are, uh, I think, important because they, um, this one in particular is not only trying to enjoin the activities of ExxonMobil and others that are, are really, you know, Responsible for a lot of, of the the problem where we find ourselves in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but they also want to um, get some assistance, right? And so, the piece about Kivalina that's different from some of the other carbon torts, is what they're called, mm-hmm. is that they want compens they want help, they want some compensation, and and for the case um, that has had a significant impact, that I think will have a significant impact on Kivalina. Um, AP versus Connecticut, the um, the court's decision to not allow that those cases to move forward because of the Clean Air Act. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but they basically foreclosed an option for the Kivalina plaintiffs to seek compensation. So even if the Clean Air Act becomes um, a very powerful source for emissions reduction, it doesn't respond to the community's need for assistance, and so not allowing um, as many uh, for that public nuisance argument to move forward 
limits their ability, I think, and just makes it even more difficult for them to get some kind of assistance in that way. And so I think we need to be thinking about compensation. There perhaps are better vehicles, but this one was a pretty powerful one, and it remains to be seen whether or not there'll be other avenues in the state, or um, who knows, right? Um, or the federal government will be able to continue to assist, or at least move forward in its attempt to, to fund and assist relocation. And this seems like climate reparations at the domestic level, which the U.S. government, for among um, a number of reasons, might be reluctant to display any sort of liability admission by compensating even its own citizens. Right. And so it's funny because I um, <laughs> climate reparations, I mean, this is sort of the third rail, right? I mean, you just <laughs> I wrote an article on climate reparations, and I remember thinking, this will collect some dust. (laughs) It might be an interesting conversation piece, but uh, whether or not it has traction in terms of actual um, specific policy, because of the political environment, I thought was quite, quite difficult. But we're actually seeing that there are some discussion about loss and damage in the international realm. And it's it's about disaster risk management and insurance markets that need to be more um, robust and mature for communities that don't have a mature insurance market that need, but need it. And then the, the third piece of the propo- sort of the, the, the most um, sort of developed and cited proposal looks at this rehabilitation, which, you know, is a lot about compensating for harms that you can insure against that are inevitable and for, you know, for which the small island states have very little um, responsibility. And so um, the, the conversation about reparations becomes a little bit more relevant, even if it's still a non, uh, a difficult departure point for <laughs> negotiations, there is, uh, some sense that something's not quite right here and that we need probably for everyone's best interest to, uh, try to find a way to make people whole or at least have a better outlook or prospect after, you know, some events occur, like ocean acidification and sea level rise and those sorts of things. Can, can we make the connection between these discrete harmful weather events to the potentially more gradual sea level rise or ocean acidification? Do you think that that connection is worth trying to make or it's valiant but not really <laughs> likely to spur any action? I see. So even so the fact that we, you know, Americans are experiencing climate impacts um, more directly and, and perhaps even making the link more directly, that will help small island states uh, make their claim and have that claim be more pal- pal- palpable for, the, for, for Americans. I, I um, Possibly. You never know. I mean, it's one of those things where you uh, think you're we were at the tipping point. Right. Right. There was Sandy, then there were the summer fires, and there's the flooding, and then there's, you know, I don't know, it's middle of October, and it's the highs are in the 70s today in New Haven. I grew up in New York City. This, I do not remember, right? <laughs> and so you, you wonder what will be the straw. Um, and same with, um, you know, rights declarations or other further attempts to d- demonstrate that this is a major issue that requires immediate response. And um, it's it's un- it's unclear what will move us, and I certainly am not of the school of you know the, the next big thing will help us and move this discussion along. Um, I don't really want the next big thing to happen. I don't think anyone does, but I also am not convinced that it's that we're not just sort of going to get used to it. I have a, my pet peeve is this: we talk about the new normal all right. the time, and I just think 
A, it's not normal, and you're assuming, <laughs> and you're assuming that we are just kind of going to another static state. And the phenomenon of climate change is about, you know, the, the ch- it's changing and the rate of change is accelerating. So unless we describe the, unless we just decide to shift the definition of new normal every couple years, every ten years, whatever it is, we are not being, we're not accurately using the term because um, it's, it's, we're looking at things getting much more chaotic, right, mm-hmm. and unpredictable. On an optimistic note. Right. <laughs> If you could pass one piece of climate-related legislation, either domestically or internationally, tomorrow, what would it be? It would be a zero-carbon game plan, bar none. And how would that play out? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I just want to make the point, though. I mean, I think it it can be done, right? We've seen the wedges over time. We know that there are, you know – Volumes of, of articles and texts and about the possibilities of rapid rollout of um, uh, a, 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 certainly a carbon light world, you know, and it's about putting our resources there. Um, so I don't do as much work on the mitigation piece, so I can't speak to the specifics of a study. But I do know that even though I do a lot of the adaptation work, that I all of this I could jettison if we could get on board with a zero carbon plan. And that is exactly what island states will say to you. Do you think, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's they don't want more aid. They want it to stop. They don't want to have to consider leaving in a good way. They want to be able to not have to leave. And so all of our effort in terms of climate policy, well, we should, we should have a real sort of um, expansive view of what we need to do. But the, ultimately, anything that we do that's not mitigation is, is purely because we haven't done the, the, the first part of the job as well as we should. And so any kind of climate policy that I'd want to see like yesterday would be um, would be an aggressive mitigation plan. Um, it's critical. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. And on a final note, uh, you're an academic. You've also done poly- policy work. You're a lawyer. Where should we as students, professors, other staff of Yale University and the broader uh, listening world of this podcast, um, where should we be focusing our efforts to promote justice in environmental decision-making? Well, I think um, what I see as most important right now is just having an awareness about the issue and then acting rapidly afterwards. So um, I really encourage my students, all students, and others to, again, take the tools that they have and with it, with it in mind that our actions have impact that are quite devastating for people right now, doing whatever it is that they can do with the tools that they have uh, for, the, um, for the sort of the better outcomes for the most vulnerable people. And recognize that the, those people that are most vulnerable today uh, are not or maybe us, not too far from now. That sense of disconnection, I think, is um, is, is false and, and misleading. And uh, and if we try to address the impacts of the most vulnerable, we are necessarily making the world better for ourselves and future generations. Well, Professor Burkett, thank you so much for your time today and for an inspiring and thought-provoking conversation. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you.